So if you're listening to this episode, it means you are intelligent, wise, well-read, and stunningly good-looking. Uh, but it also means that I wasn't able to record this episode or the normal weekly havoc episode this week. So for whatever reason, I don't know when this episode is dropping. It might be the holidays. I was busy. Our guests were busy. Um, who knows some combination of, or all the above. So for whatever reason, you are listening to an episode that we recorded at least a little while beforehand. And it's a great episode. We like to use these kind of uh, contingency plans to do our spotlight episodes. This is the second one we've recorded. And this one is with Daniel Gade, who's a great, fascinating guy that's well worth uh, an hour and 45 minutes of your time. He's a West Point graduate, combat veteran, amputee, author of Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer, which obviously we'll talk about at length during the episode. And he's also a senatorial candidate in Virginia in 2020. So really interesting guy, a lot of different rabbit holes. We could have gone down with him and a lot of rabbit holes we did end up going down um, when we talk, when I talked to him. So uh, so anyway, it's something we do like to do. I'm really happy we were able to bring him into a, in for a spotlight episode. Obviously, he'd been on the show before. If you guys remember our episode on veterans and politics, he was part of that roundtable. That was an episode that I missed, one of the two or three that I've missed, that Charlie stepped in and hosted. And I was sorry uh, I missed both him and everyone else that was on that panel, I should mention. But I was really glad to get the chance to talk to him one-on-one and at length. He's a really interesting guy. Uh, I think the quality that probably will stand out to you guys as much as it did to me for my conversation with him is that he really keeps sympathy at arm's length. And admittedly, I wasn't trying to be overwhelmingly sympathetic, um, but I I found it refreshing uh, that he was willing to be so blunt about the dangers of sympathy. And not to say that all compassion or sympathy is misplaced, but I I found his, his, um, his views on the morality of veterans and the disability claims system uh, to be uh, interesting, refreshing, bold. And um, as he himself says, both on the show and in his book, you know, he is firmly grasping a third rail of veteran policy here. And that uh, takes a certain degree of courage. And I think he articulated his concerns well. And um, obviously, we talk at length about his senatorial run in Virginia. And I got to say, after talking to him for an hour and 45 minutes, I hope he runs again. Uh, he's cer- he's still involved in politics. He's busy advising a uh, gubernatorial campaign in Virginia, which I don't know. By the time this airs, the campaign might be over. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, if it if it is, so be it. Um, but I hope he I hope he has uh, politics again in his future um, as a candidate. I think he he's an interesting guy and and seems to have some uh, ideas that could be helpful, not just to the veteran community, but maybe even to um, a civilian constituency as well. Anyway, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc Spotlight episode. (music) 
Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in roundtable discussion with the staff, writers, and friends of Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Today, of course, is a special episode where, for the second time ever, we shine a spotlight on one particular person and go in-depth, long-form, one-on-one conversation. And today, it's with Daniel Gade, who has done the show before as part of a roundtable panel. And today, he is the spotlight-featured guest. So Dan was born in Minot, North Dakota. He enlisted in the Army in 1992, deployed to OIF as a company commander in August 2004, was wounded by enemy fire twice, and decorated for valor. His second wounding resulted in the amputation of his entire right leg. After retiring from the Army as a lieutenant colonel in 2017, he accepted a political appointment as a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Labor's Veterans Employment and Training Service, or VETS. And in 2019, he ran for U.S. Senate in Virginia, garnered more votes than any Republican candidate in Virginia history, and unfortunately lost to Senator Mark Warner. His military awards and decorations include the Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, two Purple Hearts, Combat Action Badge, Ranger Tab, Presidential Service Badge, and both Airborne and Air Assault Wings. And he wrote the book, which is available right now on pre-order, Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. And he currently resides with his family in Mount Vernon, Virginia. Daniel Gade, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks for, uh, to the Havoc listeners. I'm super happy to be on here with you. Well, it's great. And I felt, I'm not going to lie, I felt a little bit of obligation to talk to you anyway, because I was really bummed I missed the political episode that you did before when we had our political roundtable discussion. And Charlie put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and elbow grease into putting that episode together, and then I couldn't make it. So this was overdue for my part. I was really happy to be able to sit down and talk with you at length. No, this is this is really fun. Yeah, my uh, my foray into politics was enlightening, and I know most of the listeners of Havoc uh, Weekly Havoc are probably veterans. And I'll just give a, like a brief lesson that that when I entered politics, you know, I'd been in the army since I, since I was seventeen in nineteen ninety two, <laughs> and retired in in uh, when I was forty two in in uh, twenty seventeen. And the cool thing about the military is that it's a high trust environment. And, you know, even if you hate somebody, even if they hate you, you're always pretty sure that they're not going to shoot you in the back of the head. You know, right. you can go you can go right. into a firefight next yep. to somebody you hate and it's going to be fine because your Americanness is more important than their mm-hmm. than than whatever beef you guys have. But what I discovered in politics is something really disturbing and t- terrifying, actually. And that is that politics is a zero trust environment. Yeah. So. You know, you can have your own. There might be a situation where your own campaign staff is, you know, leaking your text messages to somebody else or whatever. And that that actually didn't happen to me. It's just an example, but <laughs> right. but it's it's yeah. uh, as far as I know, it didn't happen to me. It's it's just really it's really strange and disconcerting to go from the high trust of the military to the zero trust of politics. You know, I'm glad you actually said that. I was talking about this. I can't remember if I was talking about it on air with somebody um, or if this was offline, but. Just recently, we were talking about this with comedy, with jokes, and I was trying to explain veteran sense of humor to a civilian, and I said, look, the reason why vets say a lot 
to each other and why the jokes can get off color quickly, why we get personal really quickly. There's is because there's a level of trust because you know, you can dog somebody nonstop that's in your unit, but Hey, when the bullets start flying, man, nobody's going to fuck with you. I'm going to take care of you. You're my guy. And there's no doubt about that. And that's that zero trust, the zero trust environment that is such, so jarring to transition to when you get out, because now it's like, Oh man, I, you know, I got to reestablish trust with you. We don't take anything on faith because, and I think what you're seeing in the political world is probably the most obviously polarized that we have in the country, you know, um, but you're seeing it even just in general day-to-day civilian life and not having those bona fides is what makes, what makes HR departments so necessary, unfortunately now. Yeah, that's, that, uh, that's right. And actually, you know, that theme of the hundred percent trust environment of the army to the, to the zero percent trust environment of you know civilian life, kind of comes through in in Wounding Warriors this this book, which is available for pre order on www.dontlaugh. <laughs> Don't laugh. Let me get yeah, the go 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 there. go go for it. Wounding WoundingWarriors.com, and if you order on there, I will send you a uh, I'll send you a signed copy. But w- one of the things that the book is about it's about the that Wounding Warriors is about it's the it's about the disability system. Yeah. fundamentally but really the the thing that makes the disability system so noxious is that <clears throat> is that it, it it begins to affect people right when they're transitioning anyway so there's this major transition from being in the military to being out of the military and that's jarring enough yeah but then there's the government in this case the VA waiting there with their with a you know a handful of cash saying hey all you got to do is take this cash and and the veteran himself or herself never knows until it's way too late that the cash is full of fish hooks and they grab it with yeah. both hands and they get their hands full of fish hooks and then they're in real trouble. Um, and that's that's what Wounding Warriors is, is fundamentally about. We're going to talk about so much more than just the book, but there's no way I can leave that dangling out there. Let's dive into this. Tell me about some of the fish hooks that you saw. First off, back up. What got you into this? I assume it was your yeah. own experience, right? Yeah, was- for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so a couple, a couple of things. One is, and and Wounding Warriors really goes back to, and it's not a bio, this is not a biographical book. And as a matter of fact, right. you'll when you read Wounding Warriors, you're you're going to find out that uh, there's very little in it that's about me personally. Mm. Um, but the roots of the book, in terms of what it exposes, goes back to something that I observed personally. So I, I'm a company commander in Iraq in 2005, January. I get blown up by an IED. Um, I spend three or so weeks unconscious and then become conscious at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, the one in D.C., not the new fancy one at Bethesda, yeah. but the old, the old janky one in, right, <laughs> in D.C. Right. Anyway, and, um, and pretty soon thereafter, my wife and I had a conversation, which I still remember, even though I spent most of that spring really high, um, oh, right. Right. <laughs> like stoned out of my gourd. <laughs> but anyway, I, re- I remember this conversation and basically she said to me, look, Daniel, um, I'm going to be in charge of our family. What, you know, you're incapacitated, you're in the yeah. hospital. I'm in charge of our family. I'll take, I'll take care of our daughter. I'll take care of our taxes. I'll take care of our bills. Uh, I'll shop for the grocery. I'll do right. everything. Right. But that's not my job. I'm going to do it because I love you. But as soon as you are capable of being the leader of our family, that's your job, not mine. Oh. And and that was pretty cool, right? Because as a man, 
you know, that gave me, that gave me that even though I had this disability, um, right. but, but by that time I was a hip level amputee and had my, my, my hands didn't work. And I mean, I was a mess sure. and a lot of that has, has gotten better. My, my leg has not grown back yet. I'm still waiting, but, um, <laughs> you have that, no crab in me, your family. No, there's no, no, there's no, no crab or lobster in your no, family. Yeah. Right. I don't think so. Yeah. Right, so, right. so, so, um, so that gave me a, that gave me a, like a guide stone that gave me like a, yeah. a guiding star, you know, then I could yeah. follow the star and the star was, I'm going to get better. I'm going to be the leader of this family. You know, I'm going to provide for my family like I used to. So what I observed around me though, was really disturbing. And that was, you know, of course, by the time, let's say a couple, you know, two, two months in, I'm starting to go to physical therapy and stuff. And they're like, you know, I mean, it started out really basic, like, here's how you lift your head up again. Wow. Um, Cause I was really sick, but anyway, so, so I would observe there to be a lot of guys around me who uh, were believing, you know, we say in the military, like, don't, don't read your own evaluation reports right? right um right or don't definitely don't believe your evaluation reports right uh but what was happening was these guys were were adopting the the belief that because they'd gotten blown up or lost a limb or whatever it was that they were deserving of whatever uh, people would give them sure and sure. so they became it became kind of an addiction to see how much free stuff you could get it was a contest yeah in a lot of ways, like, oh, hey, I got this nonprofit gave me a car, sure, you know, or sure. hey, this one gave me a house. A house, that, right. Yeah, that, that happens yeah. too. And uh, and guys were starting to get really into that. And what nobody was saying was how, I mean, some people, there were, I, I take that back, there were a few people who were like, I can't wait wait to get back to my unit because I want to put a hurting on the enemy for what they did to me. Sure. Cool, no problem. Right, uh, right. There's, there's this really good dude, uh, and, and I... I didn't mean to tell this story, so I, I uh, apologize. His name is uh, going to come back to me. <laughs> anyway, right. so yeah. get this. He had been shot through the mouth in like, I don't know, probably spring of 04. He'd been shot through the mouth, lost some teeth, uh, nicked an artery in his throat as it was exiting, and he almost bled to death, but they managed to get that patched up. But he was missing some teeth and had, I mean, clearly had this right. wound on his face, you know? Right. But he was a he was a first sergeant of a of a cav troop, and so he's like, "Screw this! I'm not even going to wait to get my teeth repaired. I'm just going to go back to war as soon as I can." And so they patch up the hole in his throat and his you know get his tongue put back together or whatever, and then he redeploys and he goes back yeah. to Iraq, and then gets hit by an IED and loses a leg above the knee, and so uh, he and he was an inspiration to me, man, because yeah, I'd been wounded twice myself, but he was like, he was a guy who was just constantly striving and constantly trying to get better. But there were a lot of kids who were believing the, believing that, um, because they had given a serious sacrifice that, that it was appropriate to give them everything. And so I began sure, to think about this, sure. like I began to think about it, like, wait, what is going on here psychologically? And I didn't have yet the tools to do the analysis of what was going on as a policy matter. But the good news is before I got blown up, I'd been offered a chance to teach at West Point. And so the first step in that was going to get a master's degree. So I observed all this stuff while I was in the, in the hospital. Mm. And then a year to the day after I got blown up, I started my master's degree in public, public policy. And so then I began to understand incentives and yeah. how incentives affect behavior and some of that stuff. 
and got really turned on to the idea and the observation, the observation and the academic grounding of the observation clicked together in a way that made me say, oh my gosh, I know exactly what's happening here. The VA system and other systems of, of giving people stuff, those systems are causing people to uh, begin to believe their own uh, believe, believe their own hype and it's changing, it's distorting their behavior in a fundamentally unhealthy way. It's a negative so incentive that, structure. It's a, yeah, that's right. right. So yeah. I always, I always give people the story or it's, I sometimes give people the story like, you know, when you go to a national park, especially out West, there's always signs that say like, don't feed the bears, right? Lock up your trash. Don't feed the bears. And the reason is because we don't want the, the bears to become dependent on humans because what happens right. when the bears become, right. they stop being bears. They stop doing, what bears do flipping over rocks and eating grubs and stuff. Instead, they become the kind of bears who flip open trash cans and eat trash. Right. And it changes what it means to be a bear. And for veterans, what happens is, you know, you're in the military and you're mission oriented and your, and your, uh, your purpose is something higher than yourself. It's the constitution and you, and you're around a bunch of people who are like you. So you have identity and you feel valued in society. And then, then people get hooked on, as they're leaving the military, they get hooked on VA benefits and get hooked on all the other free yeah. stuff they can get. Yeah. And, and, and it changes their behavior. It changes what kind of animal they are from being a wild bear to being a tame bear. And I think there's a kind of uh, deep-seated loss that occurs when people adopt that tame bear identity. So, Daniel, you're talking about something that, I think it's safe to say is sort of a taboo subject in the military. And it's something that we, that it's been, I've read stuff about it. I've heard people comment and people kind of make a foray in their comments about this and then pull away because nobody really wants to stay in this space. But talking about that perverse incentive structure and saying, and I've here heard this a lot with PTSD with the yeah, 22 yeah. suicides a day where yeah. they say, look, you're, you're geeing us up for this. You're conditioning us for failure. Um, I've myself have wafted back and forth between the two opinions. Uh, I, there's times where I go, Hey, it's nice to see a kinder, gentler response and say, Hey, if you need to talk to somebody, man, talk it out. I'm glad there's therapeutic, um, capabilities that are available to you and that there's kind of a support structure being built um, around problems that are derived from war and that's all well and good. And then I've also noticed with myself, with others that, yeah, that dependency is absolutely possible. And sometimes you go to it unwillingly because you've opened the door for more vulnerability than you were willing to actually take on. And now yeah. you become a bit yeah. more dependent than you maybe want to, or should be. Um, you are, uh, it seems like you're pretty fearlessly ta uh, tackling this. I mean, you're writing a book about it. Have you gotten any negative feedback as you workshopped the book, as you pitched it around or just internally, did you go, Hey, where do I draw the line? Where's the, where's the delineation that we should make between warranted and unwarranted <coughs> assistance and help? Sorry, yeah. Sorry for the sneezing. Um, no, sorry. Well, so in the foreword of the book, we say that uh, we know that this is a third rail and that we're not avoiding it. We are enthusiastically seizing it with both hands, and maybe mm -hmm. that maybe that mm -hmm. means that we get shocked, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so Wounded Warriors really takes on a um, some sacred cows, 
And and I, I think that in reading it, you'll discover that we did it uh, with enough nuance and gentleness that it's not it's not designed. Listen, this this book is not designed. Winning Warriors is not designed to criticize any individual veteran, um, except insofar as that there are some who are actually grifters. And if you're right. you know if you if you read Winning Warriors and and you feel insulted. Well, then I will remind you of the old phrase, throw a stone into a pack of dogs. The one that yelps is the one that got hit. Maybe you got hit. You know, if you yeah, feel insulted, yeah. maybe you got hit. But I think you'll discover that we, that I have a co-author, that we write this book in a way that's nuanced and gentle enough that it's really criticizing a broken system instead of criticizing yeah. the veterans who are often victims of the broken system. So what, what's the, and I, I don't want you to spoil any of the book, so pull your punches as necessary, but what's the fix? How do we draw, in your opinion, how do you draw that line between justified help that won't make a dependent out of a veteran? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. One is, uh, and, and all of this is laid out in the epilogue of, of Wounding Warriors, which is, that's the only section of the book that is truly written uh, by me personally. The rest mm-hmm. is team written between me and my uh, co-author. So you'll sense a tone change there. But what I do lay out in the prologue or an epilogue of Wounding Warriors is, uh, some principles by which our veterans policy can be improved or with mm-hmm. which our veterans policy can be improved. So for example, uh, what we should do instead of, uh, let me, let me blow your mind with a fact. Um, once you get a hundred percent post-traumatic stress disorder, permanent and total rating, mm-hmm. there's never, not only is that rating not going to be downgraded, or it's technically it's possible to, for it to be downgraded, but it never actually happens. Um, not only, not only is it not possible for it to be downgraded, you actually don't need to seek, there's no requirement that you seek mental health care anymore at all. In other words, they're happy yeah. to have you 100% broken, knowing yeah. that you're broken and knowing that mental health conditions re- respond to treatment. They're still okay with, you just not ever seeking treatment, staying at home, being sick, being ill, you know, drapes closed, bottle of whiskey in one hand and a pistol in the other. And we pretend to be surprised when veterans are killing themselves. Listen, we, 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 we're all like, we're all horrified by 22 suicides a day. Right. But, but in part, the fact that we are, are warehousing mentally ill people pretending as if there's no way to help them get better and no requirement to do so. And, and then we act surprised when, when yeah. we have a suicide crisis. Now, yeah. you know, I, I recognize that's like pretty strong language, but listen, suicide is a disease of despair and there's no better way to make a man, especially men, but to make a man despair than to separate him from his work, separate yeah. him from his sense of identity that he gets from work separate separate him from the sense of value he gets from work and then once you separate somebody from that even if you do it unintentionally now you've put them in a situation where they're definitely vulnerable to the worst aspects of uh of of suicide risk um so we know that uh we know the science is clear on this that that employment is powerfully protective against suicide risk um, 
what's interesting, and you, Chris, you know, might not know this, but actually, uh, combat service is protective against suicide risk too. It's not a it's not a risk factor; it's a positive factor. So, combat veterans are killing themselves at lower rates than non combat veterans, which is amazing. Um, and I have some I have some thoughts oh. about why that might. Yeah, I've got that's some, interesting. I, well, yeah, for, I, I want to hear your thoughts on it. Let me first throw this out here, and I, I'm going to join you on the third rail for a second. What it sounds like to me is it's kind of the same distinction as welfare versus workfare, that there's got to be a buy-in essentially, and that there's got to be some requirements, right? If you're going to get this treatment um, so that there is, so that the veteran is part of their own recovery, not simply a dependent. Is that a fair assessment? A hundred percent right. That's a hundred percent right. So, so we should, if if we're going to, if we're going to approach this in a revenue neutral way, so the VA the VA spends about $260 billion a year. I think their most recent budget request is, is 270 or something like that. And a little less than half of it is spent on healthcare. The other half is spent on disability benefits, believe it or not. So, yeah, so yeah. we're paying people more to stay sick through disability benefits than we are to get healthy through healthcare. It's amazing. But anyway, if you're going to do, if you're going to approach reform in a revenue neutral way, then what you do is you say about conditions that are treatable, you put more money and more time and more effort into rehabilitation so you can reskill, upskill, and transition veterans rather than get giving them a little bit for life to stay sick. So the other thing you could do in a revenue-neutral way, which helps the most deserving people and, um, and uh, forces – the less deserving people to maybe take their medicine is we ought to redefine what we mean when we say veterans disability, because so often, and, and the most common one that everybody talks about is uh, sleep apnea, mm. sleep apnea in the VA system. Uh, if you are prescribed a CPAP machine from the VA, that's the positive pressure mm. breathing mask that people wear at night. That's a 50% disability, Right, 50, all by right. itself. A baloney amputation is only 40%. So, you, so yeah, right. dude. So, right. so think about it. The right. risk factors for sleep apnea are, there's two risk factors. Or actually, there's basically three. The first one is being male. The second one is having a small neck circumference. And the third one is obesity. So if you're a man with a skinny neck and you get fat, you're going to get sleep apnea. Um, and the VA treats that as though it's a disability. It's not a disability. It's a condition, which sure, of course, we should buy a bunch of CPAPs and have them handed out and help right. people recover sure. from the effects of sleep apnea can be really devastating if you're falling asleep at work and you lose your job, all of that. I get it. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is whether or not that person is also owed $1,500 a month right, in right. For, for the disability benefit? I think the answer is no. Um, what, another thing that's really interesting, and, and uh, like when I got out of the Army, I had to go to a VA uh, appointment, of course, and they wanted me to list, you know, all the conditions, everything that was wrong with me. And so I listed like I, – I, li- I did list, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a disability rating. Um, but I listed only conditions that were combat caused yeah. conditions. That was yeah. my moral, that was yep. my moral line. So, so like my, the fact that my entire abdomen is all messed up and like, I've got scarring everywhere and it looks like Freddy Krueger lit me on fire and put me out with an ice pick or something. Right. Right. Um, the fact that I'm missing a leg, I was willing to claim that, but then I get to the part where the guys like th- this, uh, VA guys like, Hey, 
uh, what about your hearing loss? And I go, well, I don't have hearing loss. And he goes, yeah, but you definitely do because you were a tanker, right? All tankers are deaf. And I go, well, I'm not because I was really good about wearing my earplugs. And this goes on and he's like, well, but claim it. And I'm like, why would I claim it, dude? I don't understand. He goes, well, listen, everybody's going to believe that because you're a tanker that got blown up, you have hearing loss. So just claim hearing loss. And I'm like, no, dude, I'm not going to do it. He's like, fine, I'm going to put it down. Unless you can, unless you go and do a hearing test that shows that you don't have hearing loss. And so I was, I was pissed off enough that I went and did it. And I, and I showed that my hearing was, was the same at age 42 as it had been at age 22 when I was commissioned. And, and so I did not claim hearing loss. And then he was like, well, what about your, what about your brain injury? He's like, I can get you paid for that. And I go, well, I don't have a brain injury. And he goes, well, you were unconscious. True. And he goes, I can get you paid for a brain injury, man. All you got to do is claim it. And I'm like, no, dude, listen to me. I'm making a moral decision not to. And by the way, since I got blown up, I've gotten a master's degree and a PhD in public policy. I worked at the White House. (laughs) You know, I've taught college for six years at a very high level. I don't have a brain injury. Like, knock it off, you know? And he's like, fine, whatever. He's like, I could just, I could get you paid, man. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, right, right. (laughs) It's not what's wrong with me, dude. So if you look at what, if you look at what the VA pays people for, the very number one condition that the VA pays people for is hearing loss. Yeah. The second one is tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears, which is easily faked. As a matter of fact, the only thing that, that allows you to, to, a doctor to diagnose it is if you claim you have it. And the third one is PTSD and, and PTSD is a real condition or a basket of conditions, truthfully, but it's also easily faked sure. and it's easily exaggerated as well. And so, and, and so those three conditions are all easily faked or exaggerated and they are the top three that the VA pays for. And, and I think we should all take a lesson from that. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm going to ask though. This isn't, I mean, you talk about it being a, a, a feeling, a moral urge to be truthful about what you endured from combat versus all the rest of this stuff. I think there's also a psychological need and a psychological strength that you get from not admitting vulnerabilities that you don't feel. Is that overstating the case? From not admitting vulnerabilities. So, so in other words, if you were to, if you were to go and cop to the laundry list of things that they throw at you there's psychologically i have to think that also plays on a, on a vet and that you start to accept yeah i'm you you're admitting legally that you have x y and z wrong with you whether or not you do um or you're taking the easy road to say yeah i'm going to own up to all this stuff because um it, 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 there's a psychological um component to this, I think, where you can either make the choice to go, no, I'm going to be very surgical about what I want to own up to. And there's other stuff I'm going to say, no, that's not something I need help with. To your, I, I think what I'm getting at is when you're saying, look, I got a P, I got a master's and a PhD. I've been teaching college for six years. I am the definition of a functional veteran. I am not going to sell that short by copping to more problems than I actually am dealing with. Is that overstating it or no, or I, I, no, I don't fair? think it, I, I don't, I think that's 100% fair. I think that there's a, um, but that, that's, uh, that works both ways where once you admit, if somebody's willing to take, you know, if they're willing to file a 
tinnitus claim for ringing in their ears, which doesn't exist. Pretty soon that numbs you to the moral mm. component of what you just did. Sure. And then you're also willing to feign something else and you're willing to uh, feign something else. And it actually the faking is not really actually probably the main driver of all this, although it, faking definitely exists. It's just hard to measure like how many people are faking. Sure. <laughs> but the main driver is probably uh, something which is um, even more deeply rooted in the human psyche. And that's this. So I'm going to give you a Bible lesson really quick. It's quick. It's Sunday. I just came from church, right? Although this is not what we talked about at church today. So, so like, and, and theologians will quibble with this, but I doubt there's many theologians listening to the weekly havoc, but yeah, but yeah, right. They will now after this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Totally. But, but basically the first, you know, the first sin in the Bible is when Eve, you know, takes the apple off the tree and eats it, you know, the second sin is when she gives it to her husband, Adam. And the third sin is kind of the most interesting. And that's when God comes down because he's seeing what's going on. And he's like, hey, what the heck is happening here? You know, and Adam turns to Adam says to God, well, that woman you gave me made me do it. She yeah. made me yep. do it. And so so the, the sin there is blame shifting, which is yep. kind of a form of it's a form of pridefulness and a form of arrogance to blame shift to somebody else. So. So what does that have to do with this? Well, no, I see where you're going. Yeah. If yeah. you, yeah. So if you have, let's say you have a mental health condition and we have a guy in our book who, um, and the book is wounding warriors available for pre-order at woundingwarriors.com. Um, we have a guy in the, in the book who his wife tells us that his PTSD, which is undoubtedly severe. He is a severely mentally ill man, mm-hmm. that his PTSD is definitely a result of his military service. And I'm okay, great. Tell me about it. And he was a Marine and he was in combat and it was bad and all this stuff. And several of his buddies have killed themselves. And like he, that unit saw a lot of battle. Sure. But (laughs) then she tells us that, uh, he had a schizophrenic break in high school and came into the Marine Corps on a mental health waiver. Mm. And then she tells us that both of his parents were schizophrenics as well. Okay. So schizophrenia is in part, uh, genetic. Sure. And so he had two parents who were schizophrenic. He himself was schizophrenic as a younger man, saw some, had some pretty serious combat exposure. And then, uh, after she, she says this, and actually I saw a, a movie that has him in it where he says, yeah, I did a lot of hard drugs that really changed him after he got out of the military. So, so you've got this guy who has a history of mental illness sure. before service, but yet he, he and his wife both say, that his mental illness is the responsibility and the fault of the yeah. government. And they're totally okay with shifting blame to the government because at that point they have two choices. One is, do I accept the fact that my mental illness is permanent and a big deal? Well, it doesn't have to be permanent, but schizophrenia is, it's not a, it's not, you can manage the symptoms, but schizophrenia itself never goes away. But, so it's permanent and it's disabling and it's a big deal. Do you also want to shoulder the blame of saying that it's genetic and therefore it's built into who I am as a person? Or do you want to take the comfortable route and say it's the government's fault? And for sure. this wife and her husband, they've taken the route of saying it's the government's fault. And so and yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another, just super briefly, and yeah. since I, since I threw rocks at, at, at at that guy, uh, <laughs> the same thing is true. Actually, you see this a lot with um, with people who are claiming, 
either Agent Orange or burn pits or something else cause right. their illnesses. And particularly with Agent Orange, um, the VA decided about 10 years ago or 12, 15 years ago that they were going to say that uh, if, if you have diabetes, type 2 adult onset diabetes, and you served in Vietnam, that that was going to be a presumptive service-connected condition. In other words, they were going to pay all those guys disability benefits for their for their diabetes. Well, diabetes... Sure, there's a possibility that that Agent Orange can affect the, uh, people getting diabetes. It's possible, mm. although the evidence is uh, only suggestive. Okay, but what is true is that diabetes is a lifestyle disease. If right. you're fat and you're eating a lot of sugar and you have forty or fifty or seventy pounds of adipose tissue all over your body, right, you're going to get diabetes. Is there a genetic so, condi- part of, of diabetes? I thought there was something genetic uh, well, as well. I th- I, there may be, and I don't, I'm not a diabetes expert. I am a yeah. disability policy expert. And, and with diabetes in particular, type two diabetes, is a lifestyle mm. disease. Yeah. Yeah. Type two. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. I think type one diabetes is like the childhood kind and that's genetic, but type two is primarily, it, there may be a, a I think one, product, yeah, if you, if you if you need sugar, that might be genetic, but if you need to cut back, that might be lifestyle. I think that's type one, type two, because type one is. I, that, know, that I, I get right. confused. Yeah. On it. But anyway, sorry. Anyway, Just type like, two, type two is the adult onset kind that fat people get. Right. And not coincidentally, there are a bunch of 70 year old Vietnam veterans who are overweight and those guys are getting type two diabetes, but it's easier for them to say, I mean, you know, their doctor would say, Hey, diet, exercise, eat a, eat a, you know, right. eat a good diet right. and get some exercise, lose 40 pounds. Well, losing 40 pounds is hard. You right. know, it's easy though. It's blaming the government. And if you blame the government, you get paid for it. So why wouldn't you? And so we see the diabetes claims going through the roof. Please direct all your hate mail to Daniel Gade. I'm kidding. Yeah, but no, but, no I mean, I, honestly, but, but listen, like, listen, this is a controversial subject. No, and listen, it. it's it's something that needs to be said and discussed openly. And you can't have sacred cows um, when you're talking about this kind of stuff, especially when you look at the numbers that you threw out, the dollar amounts that we pay out. At some point, that piper has to get paid. And it is important to have adult discussions about this stuff. And sometimes, um, and let me also say, this is also sort of an internal discussion. And what I mean by that is you are one of the few people in the world, uh, you know, if you take the entire population of the world, that could actually have this discussion and lead this discussion. You need to be a combat veteran. You need to be somebody that's really gone through the VA process to be able to speak intelligently about it and sensitively about it um, and, and to be able to touch this third rail the way you're doing. I actually was going to go in a different direction, though, when you brought up the the biblical story and the the uh, you know choices that you make based off that. I thought it was going to be more, hey, the army screwed me X, Y, and Z way. So you know something, I'm getting it back now, and oh, that, that that's, and that's, that, that, that I can absolutely, I, I can yeah, yeah. I can see that. And the amount of times, and, and I'll I'll throw this out there. I mean. I, I hate to get into enlisted versus officer things. You've seen life on both ends of the spectrum, though. So I think you, you might have a, more of an appreciation of this. That as an enlisted guy, um, there are times you can feel jerked around. Even as an officer, you can feel jerked around. But certainly on the enlisted front, um, there are times where you go, man, I was really victimized by the system. So, okay, this wasn't the place where I got, you know, the VA wasn't the one that screwed me, the, uh, but I was screwed in this particular area. So let me get it back here. Um, let me put it back to you. Do you have any more uh, empathy, sympathy, compassion for people in that situation that do that? Or are they still 
do they still have some reckoning to do? Well, let me interesting question. I, I think that the answer is that they still have some reckoning to do. And I would suggest to any veteran who's listening to this, I, I always propose what I call a thought experiment. And you're familiar with the term, but what I'm this is not what I'm about to say is not a policy proposal. It's just a thought experiment. <laughs> right. And the thought experiment is this. Maybe if every veteran who is receiving disability benefits, like once a year, just spent a day and walked up to 10 people on the street, 10 randomly selected people at the gas station or whatever, and said, <clears throat> and said, listen, I'm a 100% disabled veteran, or I'm a 80% disabled veteran, whatever it is. Here are my conditions, one to N, you know, mm-hmm. one, this, two, this, three, this, all the way down to, you know, 21. The average post-9-11 veteran claims eight things. So let's say one to eight. And and then you explain those to that random civilian person. Would the random civilian person find it to be legit? Or would they not? Or would they say, yeah. wait, wait, I, I was a truck driver and I was a, I'm a civilian truck driver. I have that condition too. Why is that a military condition? Right. right. So for example... You know, if I walked up to 10 random citizens and gave them my one to N of the things I claim, then I don't even know. I'd have to go back and look at the paperwork. How many there were like hip level amputation due to enemy fire. Right. 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 I'll take it. Right. right. Uh, you know, scarring, nerve damage, all the things I have. Right. Am I OK with explaining that to people? Sure. Absolutely. I am. Yeah, it's fine. Right. And I think that virtually any civilian who I explained that to would say. Yeah, that's legit. Well, we can pay you for that, right? Sure. But when you walk up to a when a when a seventy year old Vietnam veteran who's you know sixty pounds overweight walks up to a seventy year old truck driver who's fifty pounds overweight and says, "Hey, I get paid disability benefits for my type two diabetes," and the truck driver says, "Well, I have type two diabetes too," and my doctor said it's because of lifestyle conditions, you know, because I'm you know not getting exercise and I'm eating terrible road food. Why is yours different than mine? Why? What makes you deserve that more? And and if that question comes up, or if that idea bothers you, if you as a veteran can explain your conditions to somebody with a straight face and believe it, you're probably legit. If it bothers you a little, or if you're ashamed of it, maybe you're lying, and maybe maybe it's not legit. Uh, so that's just a thought experiment that I would encourage veterans to to think about. And then you know, if it's not legit. I think you have a moral obligation to, you know, to famously ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You know, yeah. disability benefits are your country doing for you. Sure. Sure. It's, I'm going to ask you a question that I, I've asked different guests on the show occasionally, but I want to ask it to you because of this context um, that you're bringing up about disabilities because I think what we're getting at is do veterans regard themselves as a special class of person? Ultimately, if you're mm-hmm. willing to, you know, take these benefits um, and especially if they're not, let's say justified objectively, then, then there is some entitlement. There is some sense of entitlement. Are veterans better than non-veterans? And I know not. that's a loaded question. No, 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 okay. no, no. Of course they're not. Of course they're not. Of course they're not. So um, although they do often uh, present themselves to be. Uh-huh. So, okay. So, so look, 
I value military service. Of course I do. And the heroism of the young men that I led in combat that I saw on the battlefield is something that I get chills and goosebumps when I think about. And, you know, the sacrifices involved in uh, when a soldier is killed in action and, and you know, you know, there's this one, the first time I was wounded, I remember looking over at the soldier next to me who'd been um, hit directly in his head by an RPG that exploded. Uh, so that gives you a sense of what I was looking at. I knew that he was dead. It was obvious that he was dead. And I knew that his wife didn't know he was dead because this had just happened, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And so there, there's a level of sacrifice there, which I think our society um, ought to recognize. Um, so military service is valuable, but what it does not do is give you a lifetime pass to be an asshole. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and, and you see, you see, I think that the veteran entitlement culture of, Hey, give me stuff. Hey, give me these benefits, even though they're kind of shaky and probably related to lifestyle or aging and not so much to my military service. Um, and I think the idea of, you know, you see these people, uh, you know, wearing, there's a shirts that are available online that say veteran, you know, noun, a person who has, you know, written a blank check to his country for any amount up to, and including his life, you know, sure. sure. Number two definition, one who should be honored and whatever. Right. And I'm like, well, <laughs> my wife and I have three kids and every time she got pregnant, uh, she was writing a check to our family for any amount up to and including her life too, because pregnancy is dangerous sure, or can be dangerous, you know? And so every mom out there who has carried a child to term has done it at risk of her life. And that's valuable. Every police officer is valuable. Every, every, you know, every postman who's, who's delivering mail during a pandemic is, is valuable, you know, like, there's no extra value in you don't become a super citizen just by virtue of having served in the military. And, and part of the problem with the veterans disability system that I see is that it, it, uh, it exists on a foundation or a scaffolding of, uh, misplaced worship almost. Because if you ever if you ever say, "Hey, maybe we ought to reform veterans benefits," right? The first, as a member of Congress or something, the first thing you're going to have is a bunch of guys from, you know, the ex veterans organization at your doorstep with their hats or their shirts or their flags or whatever. Like, you need to honor veterans. Okay, true, we need to honor veterans, and that that means money. Well, no, it doesn't. That's not what honor means. You know, just like if I'm talking to my children and they ask me for a candy bar at 9 a.m., I'm going to say no because I'm a good dad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Our society doesn't owe veterans whatever they demand in terms of financial benefits. What it owes them is a path to a life that is worth living. You know, that means reskilling, upskilling, and transitioning successfully rather than paying people to be sick and useless for life, which is what we do now. So, and I think that's an important distinction, and I want to push you on a little bit. Um, the distinction between specifically that narrow 
VA-based um, entitlement incentive structure where, look, exactly, paying people to be sick. I think a lot of people can get behind that. It seems, though, that, that, that your critique of that, though, could also apply just in general to veterans' culture, to the sense of entitlement that veterans writ large have, even outside of just the financial payoffs um, of the VA, right? Because the T-shirt, you know, that that kind of entitled sense that, that veterans do, can and do have. Um, first off, how do you... So I guess let me take the devil's advocate position and tell me where I go wrong. And let me be clear. I'm not sure how much I believe what I'm about to say, but I, I want to throw it out there because the thoughts do cross my mind. So my devil's advocate position would start with, look, to go after veterans, if they're taking you know extra benefits here and there, or if, forget the benefits, if even just culturally, they there's a sense of entitlement um, that they walk around with in a sense of swagger um, for maybe the rest of their lives or maybe just for that brief five-year period, let's say, after their their enlistment is ended or their career is ended because uh, they do have a bit of a chip on their shoulder uh, about X, Y, and Z, their combat service, um, things they saw, what have you. To go after them and say, look, dude, take it down a notch. You're not You're no more special than somebody that was here going out, working a nine to five, able to build a stable family. Uh, you went through three marriages and all that. And you went on a lot of combat deployments, got it. But hey, there's no, you're no more special than the dude that was just living a nine to five, going out, drinking on Friday night, having a normal life. Um, it's, it, is there an argument that that's kind of low hanging fruit? Okay, hey, let's let's us, the veteran community, police ourselves that have already sacrificed a lot. Let's police ourselves even more and say, hey, we're demanding that you level up, that you raise your level, that you not be treated um, as a special class of society even more. Whereas we don't require this, whereas we see so much of the rest of society going, eh, you know something, um, okay, I'll take extra benefits. I'll take my stimmy check in addition to my job. I'll do X, Y, and Z. You know, that nobody else is being asked to make these sacrifices. Vets have already been asked to make sacrifices at the nature of their veteran service. And now we're policing ourselves even more and holding the line firmly about what they can claim and, and, and shaming guys that would they go, hey, look, man, I, I want to make a thousand bucks extra because I did sacrifice all those years. And if I want to claim hearing loss and if I want a little bit of yeah, uh, pats yeah. on the back, you know, um, so are, are we kind of, are we going after low hanging fruit here or what is the cultural advantage of policing ourselves, the veteran community to that extent? That's my, my question. Back yeah. To you. I mean, what an important question because that's, that's actually sort of the classic uh, pushback I get when I'm talking about this. Sure. They're, sure. they're like, well, there's, there's Medicaid fraud too. And there's, and, you know, and there's social security disability fraud and there's, you know, what about the person on welfare who just cr- keeps cranking out babies trying to, you know, <laughs> right. the whole, the right. whole welfare queen thing from the nineties was a, right. kind of a meat kind of, kind of a meme right. before meme was really a word. And so people are like, well, why are you, why is it more important to reform veterans benefits than to reform, uh, social security disability. Well, I would say that I would say that it's all worthy of reform and this just happens to be the one that I'm most familiar with intimately and have seen in my, my own life and the life of my friends. And 
to the guy who is uh, getting that, th- you know, the, to the guy who wants to apply for the thousand dollars extra a month. I say, I say, you know, thank you for your service. Apply for it if you wish. Right. Yeah. But I also know, uh, so I'm not, the, the wounding warriors does not go after them. The subtitle is how bad policy is making veterans right. sicker and poorer. So what happens when the guy gets the thousand dollars is that he, and this is, this is science, you know, Fauci says, don't question the science. So this is science, but uh, I shouldn't have invoked Fauci. As <laughs> yeah, no, I know. That's there. a whole nother. Yeah. Send again, yeah, send hate mail to Daniel Gade. You're right. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, right. so, so we should follow the social and behavioral and economic science here. But what happens when right. somebody gets a transfer payment is they reduce their work effort by roughly that amount. And so now you've got a guy, if you pay him 3000 a month, he'll reduce his work effort by 3000 a month. And what does that mean? It means that his connection to society is weakened. It means his connection to other people is weakened. It means his self-efficacy, his, his identity that he gets from his work is weakened. That sense of purpose. And, yeah. and sense of purpose. And if he, also, if he also has some underlying mental health conditions, which are untreated, then it would it should be no surprise that they those folks often end with, up with very bad outcomes up to including the worst possible outcome so 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 yeah this is a system that is full of uh, of uh th- th- this is a system that is making veterans worse off and that is full of places that are ripe for reform with enough uh political will and so in part, this book is designed, Wounding Warriors, the book is designed to give enough information to policymakers that hopefully it will add a little steel to their spines and help them make better choices on behalf of our fellow veterans. I'm going to, th- I think I've, I haven't thought about this, this much in depth um, until you're on, until you've been talking. Um, but I think I'm, starting to get a, a, a sort of bumper sticker level understanding of what I can succinctly sum up of where I'm at with it. I, and, and tell me if this, if this rubs you the right way, my sense is honor is continually earned. And I do think personally, I think veterans are a special class of person because it was volunteered because almost everyone in the military was a multiple time volunteer to do something that, Yes, they can derive personal benefit from, but generally um, doesn't necessarily, the benefit doesn't necessarily redound to them personally, at least initially. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. down the road, you can cash in on your service and get a movie written about you, but that certainly wasn't, that wasn't what was getting you through all the hard times, and that wasn't a guarantee. Um, but that sense of honor doesn't end when your service ends. It needs to be continually earned. And there is a difference between continually earning that honor and resting on your laurels. And it seems to me like what you're critiquing is a sense of resting on your laurels and yeah, uh, reflecting on perfect. past honor, right? Yeah, that's perfect, Chris. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take that on. I think that's exactly right. And I'm going to put that in my, uh, in my repertoire of things I, uh, things I talk about. <laughs> please, please. Yeah, I want to, I, I, I want to ask you right now, what do you consider yourself? Are you a politician, a writer, a lion in winter? What, are you waiting for the next election cycle? What, what, what are you right now? <laughs> a lion in winter. That's funny. I don't know what I am. You know, I, look, we all have, and, and actually this is a theme of, the, of Wounding Warriors too, is uh, about identity. Mm-hmm. 
and we all have a lot of different identities. Um, I, you know, I'm a husband and a father and a Christian and a, yeah, I'm a conservative. I'm not a politician. I, you know, I ran for office, but that was last year. And this is this year. <laughs> um, I'm a policy guy. I'm a college professor. Cause I'm still an adjunct at a, at a university. Like, uh, you know, I don't know what I am. <laughs> um, but none of the identities I put on there are veteran. Mm. I did. I never said veteran. And here's why I'm proud of my service. I'm really proud of my service. I'm proud of my service before or, you know, during, during the military and after, but ultimately if we, if we as veterans walk around identifying as veterans forever, then we're giving pride of place in our mind to something which is behind us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you see a 50 year old man with a belly walking around the mall or getting gas or whatever, and he's wearing his high school letter jacket. Right. Right. You know, even if he was, you know, Mr. Football for the state of, of Indiana. Right. It, it is, is that, a, is that a functional identity? You know, right. I used to be right. a high school athlete. Oh, well, I almost, think so. almost especially if you were the state champion, it's like, yeah, Oh, that was the yeah. peak. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of, and so I think of veteran status is like that. It, so I yeah. can't, I can't be the guy and I, I won't be the guy who just says, Oh, I'm a veteran, you know? Right. Right. What's your identity? I'm a veteran. You know? So I put a sign up in my yard that says, you know, veteran lives here. Don't shoot off fireworks or, <laughs> or, uh, right. you know, or whatever, you know, wear a t-shirt that says I'm a veteran or wear a hat that's a veteran hat or whatever, like join veterans groups. I don't do any of that in part because I want to have a forward looking identity. Yeah. You know, I want to have, uh, I, I, when, when people talk about me, I want it to be positive and in the now instead of, Oh yeah, that's a guy who got his leg blown off in combat all those years ago, you know, right. cause that's a negative past identity, not a current important one. It's funny. Uh, we were talking a few, maybe it was a month or two ago with Jeff Marshburn. Did you know Jeff Marshburn? Did you and he cross paths before I just drop his I name out here? No, the name, the okay. name is not familiar to me. He taught at West Point, um, and he was a uh, uh, an army officer and uh, SF guy. And um, but he said something that stuck with me, where he said, "You know, um, once you achieve some elite status in, in you know whether it's SF or whatever," I said, it, "You always have to live up to it." And everyone that will they'll ever meet you the rest of your life, he's like, "I work extra hard now that I'm out." Because people expect that of me. They go, oh, he's a Green Beret. I better, you know, uh, they're going to judge all Green Berets by what they see of me. And there's kind of an implicit obligation. That, I think, I don't think is just true for an elite military unit. I think that's true for all veterans. That so few people know veterans that any veteran represents a wide class of person. And there is an implicit obligation to kind of live up to that. And I think by focusing forward to your point by living, looking at the future, uh, the now and looking at the future, as opposed to looking backwards is a worthwhile um, representation of what a veteran should be. And it makes, and it, and it isn't the guy walking around the letter jacket. It isn't the guy that implicitly is uh, 
or, or that it just uh, resorts as a first response to his veteran status, that that comes way down the laundry list because um, you are forward thinking and that you are progressive um, in your life and you're just not uh, reactionary and just living in the past. Is that fair? Is that a fair yeah, assessment? Yeah, 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 totally, 100%. So th- there's a whole chapter in the book about uh, about the author of the book, Stolen Valor, which uh, it became a cult classic in the 90s It's and, and resulted in a bunch of legislation and stuff. But basically, he tells a story, uh, and we interviewed him for the book because there's some parallels between stolen valor and exaggerated disability. Um, <laughs> but true, what, we, what he talks about is when he first came on this concept, basically – uh, he was at, he was doing some fundraising for a Vietnam veterans Memorial. He'd been a combat, uh, he'd been a soldier in Vietnam, actually in the same unit as my father. Although I only found that out like last wow. week. Wow. Um, yeah. Anyway. So in my, in my father's past, so I can't ask him if he knew him, but anyway, so, so he was doing all this Vietnam fundraising and the media would come and they'd say, Hey, we want to talk to a Vietnam veteran. He, he would take them over to his, friend group, which was a bunch of successful stockbrokers, suits, <laughs> ties, maybe a little veteran pin or a purple heart pin or something, but, right. but like, you know, distinguished looking successful gentlemen. And the, and the media would be like, why are you taking us to these guys? And he's like, well, these guys are combat veterans from Vietnam. And they're like, yeah. no, no, no. We want to talk to those guys. Yeah. Because yeah. at every one of these, every one of these events, there'd be the guy in the boonie cap and the yeah. oversized, you know, field jacket which he probably didn't even wear and the scuffed right. up combat boots that whatever and and that's who the media wanted to talk about because there was this mythology that every veteran is broken yeah and 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 that's the negative form of of veteran identity the positive version of veteran identity is what a lot of us have which is hey I'm proud of my service and it gave me a lot of coping and and you know coping skills and and the and and the ability to overcome obstacles and, and critical thinking and leadership and all of that. But now I'm going to apply that to a new realm of life, you know? Yeah. It's, it's funny. You know, we, I actually, we didn't sync that up, but I'm glad you brought that up just now, but that's right. As much as there's a perverse incentive structure that the VA can enable with disability claims, there's also a perverse incentive structure that this country has invested in for decades since Vietnam, at least, yeah. of of hey the, the the Rambo the John Rambo character. We want broken soldiers that are, you know, butt hurt and PTSD'd and 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 there has to and that's right. They don't want to see the successful stockbrokers. They want to see the hard cases because that fits the narrative uh, and and the conception of what uh, veterans should be. And there's a lot of incentives for veterans to play into that role. Yeah, well, I mean, explicit financial incentives, frankly. Sure, sure. You know, if if they can if they convince a VA clinical person that they have a real problem with their service, even if the story they're telling is just verifiably untrue, the clinician doesn't care about that. I mean, the clinician is there to perform a specific role. They're not there to decide whether or not your story is true. They're just, right. so right. so anyway. So so they're not historians. They don't know that there yeah. is no. M1 tanks in Vietnam or whatever. So if you get, right. so if you right. if you tell an if you tell an absurd lie, <laughs> you can get away with it, and people yeah. do, and because there's financial incentives to do it. And so what we need is what we need, and what the epilogue to Winning Warriors talks about is we need a we need some fundamental reforms and reshaping of how we treat our veterans, not to make life harder for them, but to make life better, to help them be healthier and more successful, and 
and to close the gap between what where they are right now and where they could be if we uh, do the right things for them. What do you think of veteran influencer culture? And do, do I do you know what that do you know what that means? I mean, I'm yeah. sitting, you, you laughing, so you yeah. must know what I mean by that. Yeah, because yeah. that certainly is something that didn't exist in any other war, and now there is that kind of insta hero model where oh crap, you know, uh, you know, for those of us that said why aren't there more veteran celebrities, we're kind of making our own. How do you yeah, feel about we're that? Definitely, we're definitely making our own. Um, per, it, it, I, I call it, I. I'm going to use veteran influencer because my term was vet bro, which is right, little, right, which is a little bit less um, complimentary. Right. So you know, you've got guys like Tim Kennedy, who is definitely part of the influencer culture. Who you know, MMA fighter and a and a successful businessman and a and a does some UFC commentator stuff i think well he was a fighter he also, yeah he was a fighter for a long time yeah yeah but but he also uh during the recent meltdown in afghanistan he was with a group of guys who went over there and tried to do their best to use their military acquired skills to go and rescue non-combatants off the battlefield and bring them to the waiting airplanes so i admire that i think that's great you know you've got yeah. guys like uh, you've got guys like matt best who I would really like to meet. And I think he would find this whole conversation super fascinating because he's been, uh, you know, around it probably quite a lot. Sure. Um, he, you know, he's an, definitely an Instagram influencer and has the funny videos with the girls in their bikinis and guns totally. and all this stuff. Yeah. He's hilarious, but he's also the co-founder of black rifle coffee. Right. So he is fabulously wealthy at this point. And, I hope that I think he probably is using that for good. You know what I mean? So there's that side of things. And then there's, and and then there's the other side, which is uh, there are some veterans who think that because they got blown up or shot in the face or whatever, that automatically they're inspirational speakers and they Mm -hmm. go around getting money out of people. And it's basically pity money, which is, um, kind of dysfunctional but there's some of those guys who are pretty famous too and i'm I, i'm not going to name names because that's yeah, just sort you. of too, person, too Good. personal I, th- thanks for putting that out because i was gonna say who are you thinking of specifically yeah i because I, i'm trying to think through the list of people that i see on instagram it's so weird since we started doing this and, and charlie and i uh you launched this podcast and i've gotten back on instagram and uh and i wasn't a social media person for years. And now in the last six months, I've done more social media than ever in my life and seeing everybody that's out there and talking about their stuff. I I agree with you. I'm overwhelmingly impressed with the veteran influencer culture that they, it seems like what they traffic in for the most part are the things that are truly noteworthy and laudable in their lives uh, and they're not really a dilettante veteran version of the Kardashians. These are people that are really, you know, they're they're getting likes and follows based off of Task Force Pineapple or, you know, doing stuff in Afghanistan or helping out with Team Rubicon or doing something like that. Um, and that really is impressive. Uh, I'm, and I'm just trying to wrap my head around uh, the other and, and try to think if I've come across any of the others. And it may be my lack of Instagram expertise and and the depth of my research there that I just I, I haven't seen that enough or at least I'm not aware that I've seen it um, to any great degree but I do I, I agree with you I think it seems like generally a positive cultural step I want to get back to you though personally um, obviously we talked a lot about the the policy stuff 
I, I want to go first to a little bit of family history. I'm assuming your dad was in the Air Force because you were born and raised in Minot. Incorrect assumption. My father okay. was a my father was a like 25 year old school teacher when he got drafted to go to Vietnam as an infantryman. Wow. Um, so he was an army infantryman. He served in the army from August 67 to August 69. He served in Vietnam from August 68 to August 69. And literally, guys, when they got back, they got their as they're coming off the plane, they basically got their discharge paperwork. You know, turn your rifle in here. Here's your discharge paperwork, and that was it. Jeez. But he was a school teacher, and so he and my mom had sort of fallen in love by writing letters because this is 1969 or whatever. They're they're writing letters, and and um, I mean they knew each so, other beforehand though, right? Uh, barely, uh, yeah, really, barely. Wow, yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so they decided to get married, and that's all great. And uh, but he told my mom, "Hey, listen, the only teaching job I can find is in North Dakota. We'll just go there for like two years, and and I promise we'll leave as soon as I, you know." And then, like forty-two years later, he he uh, he died in North Dakota, where they lived the whole time. So, so you if, know, you, if you were so, been, if so you were, we just ended up in Minot. We weren't we were in Air Force. Got you. So if if you were uh, an intelligence guy, your bona fides would have been why not Minot, and you'd have said the reasons it's freezing, right? Freezing's the reason. Freezing's the reason. Yep. Freezing's the reason. Yep. Right. I, I I never. Yeah, uh, Minot. I, I spent. I think uh, I think this was a line on Seinfeld, but I spent a month there one night, um, and uh, yeah, that, that was it's a hell of a place. Um, so, how did that affect you just being from there? I mean, first off, just did you were, were did you enlist because you're like enough? I'm I'm, I'm out of my knot. I need to get out of here. Or were there other no, factors? In no, play? no, 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 no. So my I I enlisted because I wanted to get into West Point. Really? Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, and that gave me an extra route to get into West Point. So I come from a very very patriotic service oriented family. My mom is a huge Patriot. Of course, my dad was a Vietnam veteran. He's actually wounded in combat, never got a purple heart, but he had embedded fragments in his body and they, whatever the, the, the VA was really dumb about that. and wouldn't help me. Jeez. I was trying to get him one of mine. I was going to give him one of mine before he died. And then, and then that didn't work. So kind of a regret of mine, but anyhow, God, so, yeah. um, so I was, I was from this patriotic family and my, my mom's, my mom named my middle name is MacArthur. So that just tells you like what kind of family I'm from. And so I wanted to go to West Point. Uh, and so, but I definitely knew I wanted to serve my country. And so, uh, so that's, that's kind of why I ended up in the, in the army. How long were you enlisted for? Not long, actually. So I, I was one of those guys who went into, who enlisted between my junior and senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And so I went to basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma that summer, summer of 92. And then uh, graduated from basic training, went back to high school to finish high school. And then during that year of high school is when I found out I'd gotten into West Point. Wow. So I never even, I never even had to go back to AIT. Although during that time I was, um, I was trained, I was training with my reserve unit, you know, weekend drills mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was an enlisted ranger or something. I was, right. uh, you know, I was just a army reservist kind of screwing around in North Dakota. It wasn't, it wasn't rigorous enlisted but, service, but, but you knew this was going to be a career. I mean, it sounds like you, you, you weren't just trying to dabble in it and like, Hey, I'll do this for a couple of years after, you know, go to West point, have that, do my, uh, first contract. And then I'm out. It, it seems like you wanted this to be a career, right? 
Yeah, I mean, kind of. I liked the Army. I, I liked it then. I liked it now. I'm like Brett Kavanaugh with uh, with beer, you know. Um, <laughs> I like beer. Uh, I like it now. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I liked the Army, and, and I, I enjoyed serving. And so, you know, combat service was awesome. I loved serving in combat. I really did. Um, Talk about that, because I bet, I bet we have listeners that are going to be surprised you said that. Talk about why that well, was. Probably not ones who are combat veterans. Right. No, <laughs> um, that's right. So I'm thinking to my civilian listeners of some civilian listeners. I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so combat was awesome. And here's why is because I had utter clarity of purpose. Yes. And no distractions. So, so every single day I would go, you know, off the base camp and I would take my rifle and I, you know, my rifle and my soldiers and my trucks and my tanks and all this stuff. And I would go out. And I was trying to kill the enemy and they were trying to kill me. And I was trying to make sure my guys didn't get killed and to kill bad guys. That's what I was doing every day, seven days a week, you know, months on end. That's what I did. And I didn't have to worry where my food was coming from. I could either grab an MRE or go to the chow hall. Um, I didn't have to worry about, you know, where my family was because my family was safe and sound in America. And I had utter clarity and I had my friends around me. I had people who I respected around me. And, and even though we were working hard, we were laughing a lot and, and I, I loved it. I loved it. And I, and I, sorry, I miss it. I miss it. Did you do, did you do more than just the deployment to Iraq? Did you, how many deployments did you end up doing? Well, I, I was in Korea for two and a half years okay. on an unaccompanied unaccompanied tour from sure. December of '01 through August of '04. Okay. So a little over two and a half years. My wife actually came over, but lived on the economy as an unaccompanied, you know, basically as a, on a tourist visa out in the hinterlands. Sure. Um, so, so I, I did serve. I served in Korea for two and a half years, and then I served in Iraq only for five months. Do you, so if you could go back and just wish list everything that happened, I'm assuming you don't get blown up. And do you, how does your career look different if you can go back and actually script it? What other things did you want to accomplish? Um, Or are you like, no, you know something, this choose your own adventure with all the bad things that happened uh, gave me a, a purpose that I'm really comfortable with and really happy about. So, you know, I, I've thought about that a lot. Like if I could, if I could go back, would I make, what decisions would I make differently? And the, and people are always like, Oh, I guess you, I guess you would choose not to get blown up. And, and I don't actually know that that's true. <laughs> and here's yeah. why. So Ramadi in 2004 and 2005, and then 06 and parts of 07 was a deeply, deeply dysfunctional place where a lot of guys uh, exposed to that toxic, think of it as acid, you know, acid takes, acid can eat through anything given enough time. Right. Right. Um, My fear, I guess, would be if I was going to try to relive, relive my life without getting wounded as seriously as I did, would be that I would keep my leg and lose my soul. That combat then and there was so destructive in terms of people's psyche that I saw 
I know of stories of men that I respect or, or men who I would like to have respected, I should say, who ended up doing things that were, um, outside the rules of engagement, we'll say, you know, killing people who didn't need to get killed either through carelessness or through malevolence. Right. And the more exposure you have to combat, the more soul draining that is. And could I have withstood it? I don't know the answer. And, um, I've had a lot of great things that have happened to me because of, or in part because of my injuries. So, um, I, you know, I've met president Bush and I've ridden mountain bikes with him. You know, he, he painted me in his book of wounded warriors. I'm in that book. Um, which is kind of cool. Like there's an act, I have an actual painting. Well, (laughs) the real painting, the real painting is at the, at the Bush library, of course, but the, um, like I have a high quality museum. I have a museum quality print of, of, uh, that George Bush, you know, of his painting. You know, that's pretty cool. You know, he's a president. Seriously. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, it's sort of a long story, but, but, uh, I had, uh, I had some injuries that required us to do, uh, IVF to have our, to have our, um, our twins. So they're IVF twins and they probably don't know that, but they, they also probably don't listen to the weekly habit. (laughs) Um, so, so, uh, so they had to basically do a procedure on me to take out some sperm and, and like everything's there and it works fine, but I basically had an explosive vasectomy kind of wow. how that sort of works. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. anyway, anyway, so I had to do IVF and that, that IVF resulted in twins. Now, would we have only had singles and our twins are lovely. They're great kids. So yeah. maybe I, maybe I got those kids because of getting blown up and that makes it worth it. Just those guys make it worth it. So I just, I don't think it's, it's productive to go back and, um, and second guess your life yep. in that way. Yeah. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd marry the same, you know, I'd marry the same woman. I'd still go to West point. I'd still, you know, I, there are things I regret in my life, but those major big block things are not things that I regret. So Daniel, it's a pet peeve of mine. Um, that I've, I, I've said this before on the show. I think that successful people often don't preach what they practice, um, either because it's, uh, politically incorrect or it's too difficult to kind of verbalize the ins and outs of it. And, um, and it's not for a lack of desire to share personal things. It's just sometimes people just end up not getting into the weeds of really what makes their operating system tick. You mentioned before, um, you know, you consider yourself a Christian, you, you know, have the Bible, have Bible references handy. So I'm going to just throw that out there. How much, how important has your faith been in not just getting you through things, but also giving you a future direction and an operating system for life? Interesting. Yeah. Very, very important. So, I mean, I mean, and I realize that, you know, every, every faith has some, I mean, but it's called faith, right? Um, every faith has some things that are, that are, you know, pretty tough to believe. Right. So in Christianity, we have some things that are pretty tough to believe. We have to believe that this, you know, savior was born of a virgin. We have to believe that, um, that he was crucified for our sins and rose again from the dead on the third day. And those are, those are some, those are foundational beliefs to what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian without believing those things. And those are tough. Those are just, those two are pretty tough to, to believe, but your choice 
I think, is to choose whether or not to choose basically whether do do you want to believe that that we're all part of this cosmic math problem, right? Mm. That that order arose from chaos and that and that we that we evolved and and that we're here and that we're sentient and that we're whatever, like that's all a math problem. That's a, a bunch of probabilities stacked together. Mm-hmm. So do you choose to believe that you are a product of a math problem or do you choose to believe that you are um, created by loving God with a purpose for your life? And I find it to be important to my identity to believe that I'm a person made by loving God with a purpose for my life. Even though my life has been one of, you know, great joys, but also great, um, great sadness and great loss. So, so I, I do believe, and I choose to believe that God's purpose is something I should aspire to. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an important part of my operating system, as you said. So if, if somebody's listening to this and is an atheist or agnostic or, um, you know, was a Christian dropped away or religious in general and dropped away and has had trouble finding faith, um, just to get into those operating system details, how does, if they're listening and they go, ah, you know something, Daniel, you're a little bit delusional. Uh, I mean, okay. So you chose not to believe in the mathematic probabilities and all that. And you opted for this loving God scenario. Can you walk somebody through just what is, how does that affect your decision-making? How does that color things differently for you than if you were to be one of those people that talks constantly about, well, I only believe in science and I only believe in the mathematical probabilities. Yeah, all that. Yeah. How does that make it different for you? Um, I, with respect to my particular, uh, hardships, which, uh, if you're somehow picking this up this far in, um, I was blown up in Iraq and lost, gave a leg at the hip and a bunch of other serious injuries and spent a year in the hospital and all that. So, so I know what suffering looks like. Um, close up and personal, I've suffered. What my faith gives me is a way to contextualize that suffering. Mm. That if you believe, if you're one of the people who believes that it's all a math problem, then you'd get pretty, I think you'd be pretty upset by the fact that the probabilities assigned you a position of suffering. Mm. Whereas if you're a Christian or, you know, a person of faith and you're suffering, you can, you can say that God has assigned me a position of suffering as part of his role in ordering the universe. So some of the best writing that's ever occurred has been people of faith suffering through unimaginable circumstances. Victor Frankl in in uh, the the prison camp, you know, and sure. I don't remember which prison camp he was in. I think he might have been in, even in Auschwitz, actually. Yeah. So, and obviously, you know, he's not a he was not a Christian, but his writing um, is phenomenal, right? And and some of the greatest acts of of self sacrifice and and of service to others are people of faith in incredible circumstances. You think about uh, Father 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 Kapuan in in um, in the Korean war, who, by the way, his, uh, remains were just repatriated a couple of months ago, which is mm. pretty cool. Wow. Um, but he was, he 
gave himself up for his fellow prisoners of war in a prisoner prisoner of war camp. And the Korean war prisoner of war camps were like the worst, you know, way worse than some of the, you know, some of the other experiences of other people in other wars. But, and and so he ended up dying because of that, but I I am imagining, and I, I know from some study I've done on him that his, that his faith gave him something that allowed him to organize that suffering under a framework that then was manageable because he believed that it was assigned to him by a loving God and therefore was worth suffering through. Yeah. And so that's what, I think that's what faith does for people who have, who have it is gives them a framework to, to organize difficult losses. That make, that makes, I think that's a great answer. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's actually, I I think, dangerously close to the accurate definition of an operating system. It is literally a way of operating um, that gives you that, yeah, that framework that, that you need to, to push forward. Yeah. I, and I think honestly, and I, I've thought about this a lot too, is I think that people, the people who struggle the worst with uh, emotional trauma after difficult experiences, whether it's a war or a rape or a car accident or a whatever, Although typically, I know interpersonal violence, war, and and sexual assault, and so forth, um, is more disruptive to people's mental stability than things like earthquakes. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder whether there's a function that has, and I haven't seen it, any of this in the literature about whether people with an, people who whether people of faith handled it differently than people who are of no faith. And furthermore, I wonder whether people who have an high, have a high internal locus of control, which is to say that they believe that they themselves are the authors of their own destiny fare better than people who believe that they are victims of circumstance. And I think, the, you know, as an officer in combat, I felt as though I was the, you know, I was the biggest dog in the valley, right? Sure. I was the I was the guy with the tanks, and the bad guys were the guys with you know IEDs and stuff. And so I felt like I was the biggest, you know, badass there was. And so, so, um, so I don't, you know, I don't have any post traumatic stress in part because I believe that God has a plan for my life, and because I felt like I was the I was the toughest kid around when I was in combat. So. I want to, it's, I'm just, it's speculate. It's raw speculation. It's not based no, on any science. No, it's, it's an interesting question though. And I, I agree. I've often thought along those lines, you, what is it that, what, what's your most high percentage operating system that you see out there? Um, you, and I think you see people succeed in, in tough situations because of some deep rooted faith in something. The question is, what is that thing? Is it yourself? Is it your own? Do you have faith in your own abilities, or is it something external to yourself? Um, and I do think that it's interesting for people to think about, uh, you know, religious faith and how that factors in. And that's not saying that something can't come in and pervert that. That you know, take somebody that has a religious faith and and make them do something twisted or evil or what have you. Um, God knows, there's plenty of examples of that. But I do think it's interesting to uh, where you find that that locus of control. I, I think that's an interesting question. I don't know. That's a longer yeah, discussion. I, yeah. 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 It's certainly a different discussion. So let me ask you about. I know you've said, look, that was last year. I ran for an office, and, but 
look, you, you, you took a, you took a real bite of that apple. I mean, you ran, <laughs> I took a pretty big bite. <laughs> you really did. I mean, you know, I mean to run for as a U S Senator, um, let, let me first start maybe just by asking you about that race. So my first thought, this is just me. My first thought when, when I heard that, when Charlie first mentioned that to me, is then I first, then I remembered your name and I was like, Oh yeah, that was that guy. Okay. Got it. Right. Um, Wait, are you in are you in Virginia? I'm not in Virginia, but I'm, oh. I I did live in D.C. in the D.C. area um, uh, a while ago, so I know Mark Warner. I know of him. Uh, you know, he was technically my senator for a brief period of time, and uh, my first thought was, too bad. I mean, I'm a conservative, uh, as I've said on the show. I'm I'm a pre-Trump neoconservative, if I have to label myself. Which nowadays it seems like everybody wants to label ourselves, so I'll do that. Um, put my priors out there. For me, uh, my first thought was, ah, it's too bad that he lost. My second thought was, and it's also too bad he ran against Mark Warner because that's not public enemy number one on my list. Um, so let me start there. Was there any political calculation in you living in Virginia and running against Mark Warner? Uh, were you already there and it just was like, well, hey, this is this is the 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 opponent that I have in front of me, or was there any sense of, nope, I want to, I want to do this in Virginia. And there's a reason why I want to run in Virginia against this particular candidate. No, no. If I had been, if I, if I was choosing uh, an opponent, I would not choose the richest person in the United States Senate. (laughs) Um, And I, and I, if I was choosing a state for political purposes, I would not choose Virginia. I would have been, uh, you know, I, you, I could go to North Dakota and win a primary there right. and win an election there, you know? Right. Um, but that, so that's not what I did. That's not what I was doing. Uh, I live in Virginia. Virginia is the only place I've ever lived voluntarily, which is a true statement. Um, and so I was uh, wanting to be better. I was wanting better people to represent us. Okay. And, um, and 2020 was the year when I uh, ran in 2019, but um, and, and 2020. So, so yeah, that's just when I that's just when I did it. I there was no political calculation involved in why then and there. And and yeah, I think Tim Kaine, our our other U.S. senator for Virginia, is way worse than Mark Warner. Sure, because sure. I think I think Warner fundamentally is a is a weak man with a with a floppy spine, and so he just goes along with whatever his party tells him to do. Whereas I think Tim Kaine is a true believer, hard leftist. You know, his son is an Antifa guy who's gotten arrested for, for Antifa activities. I mean, he's, yeah, dude, he's, he's, he's a legitimate hard leftist. And I don't think, I I don't think Mark Warner is. So as we said, you took a, you took a proper swing. You really went for the big time why not give it another shot? I mean, you've already tried to scale that mountain once. You're that much wiser, savvier about how to go about it for the future. Is that a consideration still, or is yeah, it I'm, I'm, not on the front yeah, burner? I, I may, I may run for office again. Um, right now, I'm I'm working full time on the campaign of uh, of a guy named Glenn Youngkin, who's running for governor in Virginia. He'll be on the ballot here uh, on November second or third, whatever date that is mm-hmm. this year, and. Um, and he's a, an absolutely great man who I'm trying to get across the finish line. So I'm I'm still active in politics. I'm just not a politician and not a candidate right now. But you are a policy guy, so it does make yeah, sense for guy. you to be there, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. 
Totally. What do you find is your, or what particular angle are you taking when you're advising them? Is it about VA stuff specifically? Is it veterans issues writ large? Is it, uh, you know, uh, foreign policy stuff? What, what is it no, specifically no. you're bringing yeah, to the so table? Governor, yeah, governor races don't have much to do with foreign policy. I'm, yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I'm in charge of like coalitions. So the, okay. the, I'm over the sub, the sub guys who are in charge of the faith coalition, the Latino coalition and the, you know, firefighters coalition and the law enforcement coalition. So I'm the boss of all those people um, and have done some policy advising as well. Anything but for the VA? Any part of that, Phil? Anything from yeah, the book so, filtering into that? Um, no, not really. So okay. most of the most of VA policy, virtually all of VA policy is federal policy, not sure. state. And sure. so a governor a governor can't do much about that one way or the other. Um, the governors have control over how many state employees are focused on uh, helping veterans file claims, and they have some input into. Uh, you know, helping pave the way regulatorily for new veterans clinics and things like that to come in. But the the governor's piece of a veteran policy stuff is relatively limited. I guess it's. I guess this would be a good, good as good a time as any to ask you about the VA in general. Uh, do you believe in the VA system? I, if it were up to me, I've always said I, I would have been just fine if they just give me a credit card. And go here. You go. Go get your own treatment. Um, I, I've I've never the VA system. I'm like I'm done with bureaucracy. If I'm out of the military, I, I don't want any more cumbersome bureaucracy or as little as I have to have. So for me, it, the juice was never worth the squeeze. But um, I, I understand I'm one very minor data point in in the much larger picture. How do you feel about it as somebody that's looked into it a lot more? Yeah, yeah. So the uh, Wounding Warriors uh, available for pre order on WoundingWarriors.com. I'll send you a signed copy. Um, uh, the wounding warriors is really about the disability system, not about the healthcare system. Right. The healthcare system is pretty good and is a is pretty well received healthcare system with some problems, as you would expect from a large bureaucracy. I'm a huge fan. I think of of the idea of giving veterans care or or the ability to access care that follows them, however they choose to construct that. Mm -hmm. And that's much more like the credit card situation that you described. Um, I don't think that, you know, if you look at a VA, if you look at the kind of things the VA does, the, in the civilian mind, the VA is really doing like, they're doing like prosthetics and they're doing, you know, blind therapy and they're, you know, they're taking care of spinal cord injuries and all that. And there is a small percent of the overall population that, that has those conditions. But really what the VA is doing is geriatric care. Um, yeah. the, the bulk of veterans, the vast majority of veterans are, are over the age of 50. And so the, the VA is doing a lot of geriatric care. And, and that's fine because geriatric care is important. But yeah. it's not, you know, if you're an old, you know, if you're a man with in your 60s with prostate cancer, it doesn't really matter whether you used to be in the Army or whether you used right. to be a truck driver. Right. Either way, the treatment is going to be the same. And so, you know, same thing for all the other normal conditions of aging. Um, so the VA does that. And I don't know that that has to be a whole special system set aside for veterans. There are some obvious reforms we could do on that side. Yeah, it's funny. We did a um, we did a special episode, a kind of crossover episode of the Weekly Havoc with Project Sapient, which is a military law enforcement podcast the other week. And um 
obviously I'm giving away kind of when we're recording this by saying that for anybody that cares and wants to look at the timeline. But on that episode, uh, one of the Project Sapiens guys, father-in-laws sat down and he was a Vietnam vet that had recently returned to the VA system and was really traumatized by the treatment that he got there. And uh, it was out in Arizona, which is in my limited experience where you keep hearing all the horror stories of VA treatment. And uh, it just was a reminder to me that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, that again, geriatric care um, and something that probably could be done well, uh, if not better on the private side, it may not exclusively need to be the uh, domain of, of the VA. Anyway, that's not going anywhere, but just wanted to throw that data point out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of reform that can be done for sure. I want to ask you about the book um, specifically. Not that we haven't already talked about it a whole bunch, but I want to ask about the mechanics of it. How did you get together with uh, Dan Wong to write? Yes, it? yeah. So Dan Wong used to be a Wall Street Journal reporter, mm-hmm. and he was an he was on the economics beat, but he was also occasionally doing stories about veteran stuff. And he would always call me like, Hey, what, what, you know, what's the truth about this? What's the truth about that? Because some other people had recommended me as one of the experts in the field. Gotcha. And so I was one of his, you know, he would call me and we'd talk about stuff. And then one day, you know, I don't remember if he said it or if I said it, but I was like, you know, we should really write a book, you know, instead of all these, like, instead of all these stories, why don't we just write a book? And he's like, Whoa, that's amazing. Let's do it. And that was like in 2016 or so. So really? Wow. Yeah, this is like five years ago. And so we got the book written and it took a long time to find a publisher and stuff like that. So there were some mechanics there that I wasn't anticipating, but um, I'm really proud of the product. And you can you can actually read a, read an excerpt on woundingwarriors.com and, uh, or you can buy your own and I'll send you a signed copy. What? So if you had become a senator, a U.S. senator, would the book still be out now? Would that have gotten pushed to the right? What would have happened with the book? No, I would. Have, we would have definitely released it, and okay. I, I would have probably sold a lot more. Um, <laughs> obviously, well, it's on uh, pre-order, so who knows? The last chapter, no pun intended, has not been written, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Truthfully, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it. It would have, it would have definitely gone forward because it really does outline. I, it, I stand by everything that's written in the book. I, I believe what we have, what we have written, and I believe that the. The uh, policies that are making veterans poorer and sicker need to be adjusted, uh, and I'm I'm happy to talk to anybody about that anytime, anywhere. Are there more books coming out? Are there more books in you? More things that you want to dive into? Well, you know, I've actually I had a the first book idea I had was a totally different one, and it comes from uh, basically a lot of people who deploy to combat write a, write a final letter to their wives. Right. or their husbands or whatever. And I did the same thing. And I still have my letter that I wrote to my wife and, and she has read it by the way. Um, and it was, it was a very emotional experience for her, her to read what I wrote her from the perspective of having died. Um, yeah. Pretty powerful. Yeah. And so the book, uh, which I still would like to do, although have not yet completed, is um is from that perspective basically some of the letters that people have written and then were actually delivered because the veteran yeah. was killed yeah some of the letters from people who have written and they still are alive and what they would have said and what their life is like now and um 
and just literally just the letters, not any commentary, nothing else, but just the letters, because I think people would be really emotionally affected by, by reading those letters and yeah. thinking about what our, what our warfighters are facing for those who get ready to go to war. What is, what is that concept like? And, um, reading those letters as a deep dive insight and, and veterans say funny things. And there'd be some, there'd be, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, when somebody writes a final letter to their wife, there's undoubtedly going to be some, some mushiness and thanks for the good times kind of stuff. And right. that's, that would, that would sell books too. People would love to read that sort of stuff. So anyway, uh, th that book would be, it would be an immediate, amazing bestseller. But the problem is veterans in that realm are actually a little bit private. And yeah. so they don't want to, um, it'd be tough to find veterans who are willing to give me those letters. And that was the main problem I ran into. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I could, uh, that seems like a justifiable obstacle. I was actually thinking while you're talking about that, uh, there was a Marine, a Marsoc guy that, uh, I met this summer who had a bad two month stretch and that he didn't think he was getting out of. And um, before he went on one op, he sent the letter to his wife. And then, oh, he, and then he made it. Um, but she went, I think, two or three weeks uh, without hearing from him and thought after she got the letter. And, and she was like, oh, he's gone. And she's just waiting for people to come to the house and, you know, whatever. Oh, so that. she thought the letter, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, the it, letter it, would never, it, the letter it, would never arrive before before the uh right it was a kind team. of a, it was a weird it was a weird timeline the way that all shook out but she it was, so it was obviously she's confused there's she's waiting for the other shoe to drop and she's not hearing anything and all she has is this letter um so i i couldn't imagine you know, what he told me this right in front of her too and I, I i was like wow i was like boy you guys survived and thrived you must have said some great things in there that you know, I uh, got her over that, that, that rough spot, but yeah, that was uh, I was like, it's a pretty rare story to, to hear that and hear how that played out. Anyway. Yeah. One of those things that uh, definitely is a, uh, is a sensitive subject. I guess, let me ask you about this. Cause I'm thinking, I always try to think of our civilian listeners when we do these, because I think for military guys, um, there's a lot that I know they get out of these, but I think it's especially important to bridge that civ mill divide is some Charlie faint and I always talk about with these shows. And I wanted to ask you about combat, about combat service. My, my take on it, it's always been for as far as civilians need to under, need to know, to understand the veterans mindset when it comes to combat, it's a little bit like asking somebody about their honeymoon night. It, it's not really, it, it's just incredibly personal. So it's not something you're really going to share right off the bat. And it's not going to be something you share with people that you don't hundred percent trust yet, unless there's some external value to you doing it. Um, but really, it, how do you feel about that, that parallel that, that these are just sometimes asking combat vets about their experiences is a little, that's, that's kind of the, the equation that I always related to that honeymoon night feel and that honeymoon night, uh, intimacy, uh, that's kind of required to share that with, with, a a pop, an other group of people that might, you might not be related to. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of veterans that I know feel that same way. Um, strangely though, I'm actually not one of them. Mm. Uh, and so people are always like, you know, I, I, so just as a 
point of fact, like I don't use a prosthetic, so I'm just, I use crutches and I'm just crutching around, you know? Wow. So it's pretty obvious that I'm a veteran, right? But people are sort of sometimes really shy to ask me about it because they're like, well, but you know, I don't, I don't want to pry, but you know, can right. you tell me what, ha- what happened or whatever? And I'm like, of course I can. And of course I will. And I've got, I mean, like I have, uh, one of my surgeons actually sent me, he gave me a slideshow that was, uh, still images from the first surgery I had. Wow. So you can see in graphic detail, like the actual wounds of what it was like when, when I showed up at the surgical hospital. Um, and they're very, very, very graphic right? as you could, as you could expect. So, but I, I'll show those to anybody who asks. And the reason is because my story is part of the American story, right? Like one tiny little, you know, one little period, one little period in a, in a, in the, in the volumes of American history, but still my story is part of the American story. And so I, I think that, you know, I think every member of Congress, if I could sit down with them and show them, okay, so this is what happens when an IED goes off under a Humvee. And this is what, this is what it looks like on the inside. Maybe they would be a little more circumspect about sending our young men and women to, you know, die for whatever nonsense thing they want us to die for. Right. Um, And for every American citizen, you know, I want them to know, I, I would love it for more people to understand what military service actually means so that instead of just cheering on like, yeah, smart bombs, they realize that, that as we're yay, smart bombing people, we're also putting our Rangers on objectives that are right. full of mind wire obstacles. And those Rangers are doing hard things in the middle of the night to no praise. And so th- the more, I, the more we can break down the mythology around what it means to serve and give people a real sense of it, I think the better off we as a country will be. So I'm not shy about telling my story to anybody who asks. Are you in favor of bringing back the draft? I'm, you know, no, not really. I mean, I'm torn primarily because, uh, I'm torn because I, I don't want the drop in quality that the military would have mm-hmm. um, because un, people who are not there willingly don't serve as well as people who are there willingly. Mm-hmm. But I um, also understand how that would make military service a kitchen table conversation at every kitchen in america instead of just something that we do because it's a family business so i can see the arguments on both sides i haven't come down firmly on either one i think there are no good options and probably no bad options there either it's there there's probably equal i I feel like there's almost equal arguments on both sides sure how do you feel Especially because when you deployed, this was kind of the height of the argument around what I'm about to ask. But how do you feel about private military companies, about people that for profit are willing to send very experienced former soldiers um, into harm's way? And the argument has always been, well, yeah, hey, this saves, you know, teenagers from Iowa having to go out and get blown up. We'll send Blackwater. We'll send Z. We'll send Triple Canopy. Custer Battles. How How did you feel about that whole private military company? Um, 
involvement. How do you feel about all that? Um, I think that private military companies for specific non-combat purposes would be fine. I don't like the idea of military companies for combat purposes. And here's why, because nations are allowed to make decisions, which are political decisions to kill the citizens of other nations. Individuals making those same decisions are murderers. The difference between killing in war and murder is whether or not you have the legitimacy of the state behind you. And to me, the legitimacy of the state means military uniform, a military ethic, an oath to the Constitution, and not just cashing large checks for for money. And so I, I think I'm more willing to put the 18-year-old kid from Iowa at risk than I am to sacrifice our principles in order to put a you know operator at risk who is who is charging the government half a million dollars a year. So what, it's kind of a, it's it's a, it's like a constitutional argument basically mm-hmm. that I'm making, which mm-hmm. is that which is that the the authority to kill lies in the state, not in a contract. And so. Would you? I'm assuming you would define a personal security um, role as a combat operation, right? If if VIPs are being protected uh, by a private security company, yeah, maybe. I mean, that's more like a defensive role, and so, so I don't know. I haven't thought so deeply about it. I think I'd be okay with the. I'm okay with the the strictly defensive role. Okay. Maybe, but not not the offensive role. You know, I, I don't know. I, come back to make yeah, me yeah, think yeah. about it, and we'll do it a different time. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Not try to put you on the spot. It's I, I figured you would be one of those people that would uh, be interesting to ask those that question to. That's something I've thought about for a long time, and I I can see the. Uh, I thought, you know, boy, there's a potential for a great James Bond movie in there where the villain is a. And I'll I'll say it because I'm I harbor no ill will, but kind of an Eric Prince type who has a, a company, and you know there's a great argument to make. I can help a government out, or I can help a government out, and uh, and it's interesting to put that against the nation states uh, agents uh, like a James Bond type, and you know there's a lot of I don't know I, I could see a lot of potential for uh, interesting questions to be raised through an entertainment format with that, but that's kind of a, a pet project a pet uh issue of mine um daniel listen i i appreciate this this has been a blast i've really enjoyed yeah, we've, this we've gone an hour and 45 minutes so that's pretty amazing it, it really is i know and i really appreciate it. and thanks for being so generous with your time as well uh once again for those that didn't pick it up the book is wounding warriors you can get it you'll see all the tabs all the uh all the links for uh for it in our description at the at the show notes which will be at the weekly havoc.podbean.com but um daniel thanks a million really appreciate yeah, this. totally the uh totally the uh if you order it on woundingwarriors.com then uh not only do i get a bigger cut but also uh i'll send you a signed copy and if you uh order on amazon or something like that jeff bezos keeps all the money but the audible the audio book is available on Audible, which is of course an mm. Amazon company, and I dictated it myself. I did the I did my own reading. Yeah, I did. How my long own did that take you? That must have been days, uh, right, to get yeah, through that. Yeah, several sessions of a couple hours each. But um, the overall audio book is about ten hours long. I suggest listening to me on like one point four x. 
because I had to, like, I had to, when you're reading it, you have to enunciate each word, you know? Right. And so it, it ends up kind of pokey as you're listening to it. And so I listen to myself on 1.4 when I, uh, when I'm reading it. Duly noted. Outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, thanks Daniel. Everyone else, Appreciate you. if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, five-star review would be outstanding. You can say whatever you want to us or about us. Questions, comments, snide remarks. As long as you can attach it to a five-star review, that would be outstanding because the metrics do matter. As I said before, the show notes, including all the links uh, to Wounding Warriors and uh, anything else that we talked about that might be linkable content, those will be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com or at my accompanying article at the Havoc Journal, or wherever you're listening to this podcast, just scroll down and you'll see the links there. There will also be alibis for anything I misstated, misspoke, misremembered, something I said that needed more context, anything that would cause me to wake up at the morning, at like two in the morning and break out in a cold sweat. Uh, I will try to address that in the alibis. That also extends for Daniel. I don't, usually no guest takes me up on this because I'm the only one that tends to brain fart in a way that I need to actually write and cover my own ass after the fact, but it's always there for our guests as well. From Ernest Hemingway to Lee Marvin, from Jimi Hendrix to Mel Brooks, there has always been a very special type of American with one foot in both the warrior world and one foot in the artist world. After 20 years of war, a whole new generation of veterans are infiltrating artistic realms from poetry to theater, from dance to metal, from watercolor painting to stand-up comedy. Savage Wonder, is a podcast about warriors and artists. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events, which, full disclosure, is my nonprofit. If you want to hear me conduct one-on-one long-form interviews with veterans of the military, law enforcement, fire EMS, intelligence services, or DOD contractors who are also artists, please consider adding the Savage Wonder podcast to your queue. It is available at savagewonder.podbean.com. Again, that's savagewonder.podbean.com or on any of your podcast platforms that you listen to find podcasts. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Daniel Gade. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.